Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. Hey guys. Hello guys. Welcome back to episode number. Oh yeah. We never do that. I know. I have no idea. But it is oh, like 69? 71. Ah, uh, okay. We missed 71. the 69 joke. So. <laughs> <laughs> episode 71. Okay. Um, and this one is going to be cool because some people who listen will know about it because mm-hmm. they were involved with it. But most people who listen will not know about it because they don't live near us or yeah. know us um so this whole semester uh here at this school with the students we've done a reading group mm-hmm. outside of class um and every year the reading group is a theme so we have yes. regular philosophy club but then we have a close reading group and the theme of the reading group this year was a whole semester dedicated to unpacking the difference between bum 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 the difference between analytic and continental philosophy. Yes, we went through specific, specific, I should say, areas within philosophy that we kind of compare and contrasted the two traditions. Mm-hmm. We went through metaphysics in general, uh, philosophy of mind and philosophy of language. Mm-hmm. Um, we identified these three just because they seem to be important within those two traditions. Uh, philosophy of language, uh, it's you know the one that kind of kind of where the rift happened and then philosophy of mind was attached to it and metaphysics in general became mm. uh, more and more prominent uh, in this divide. Um, it's interesting, I want to say. Uh, I, I think it's interesting. And um, and it's supposedly a rich topic in general, right? And most people might, might be asking, what is this divide? What are they talking about? <laughs> yeah, so I guess in general... It's like, what if I told you there were two <laughs> totally different ways of doing philosophy? Yeah. Um, so you might go to one school or have one teacher and then go to another school and have a different teacher and totally different, not just because of the teaching mm-hmm. style, but because of the approach to philosophy is different. And it could be so different, in fact, that the one person will be like talking smack about the other yep. and vice versa. So there's this weird rivalry that exists. Yes, and it's um it was worse before. Um it's getting a little bit better mm. but still there's no sympathy left uh between the two sides, I wanna say. Yeah, and it's funny because there's all these arguments about whether like it's a true distinction um, whether it's manufactured or whether there's a distinction in some areas and not others. Yep. And I guess full disclosure, we are on one side of this. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we would technically be considered the quote unquote continental side of things. That said, and already this hits, how can we say, probably a nerve. I will say that usually you talk. Sp- smack is the analytic side more about yes. the continental side than vice versa. Agreed. I think there's more 
acceptance and respect from the continental side for this other way of doing philosophy. While on the analytic side, they would say that they, all, they are the only one doing philosophy, pretty much. Right, and which the rest is gibberishing. Is like, yes, exactly. And I mean... At least at the beginning of the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say I think though both you and I come from the quote-unquote continental background, mm -hmm. there are areas where we do like the analytic stuff. Like for you, you are interested in language. Yeah. And both sides, quote-unquote, do that. Yeah. Um, I think analytic philosophy of mind is important, and I mm -hmm. think there are some interesting overlaps to be made. So I don't think we should view it ultimately as this hard line, you're one or the other, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, and it's also, you know, this is one of those things where people are going to be like, oh, of course there is a big divide, and other people mm. will be like, well, you guys are not playing the divide enough. Because yeah. it's really a matter of perspective there. And And this is not... You might be like, oh, this is like over my head. I got to be super into this. But I don't think so. I don't think so. No, I don't think so because we're still going to be talking about a methodology and we'll probably end up talking about stuff yeah. that go beyond the, the divide itself. And ultimately there's metaphysical convictions or lack thereof kind yeah. of in the background. So what do you think of this <laughs> distinction in the very, very beginning? Um like, what even is it? How did it happen? So, historically, right, uh, this distinction happens when a group of philosophers, um, specifically living in England at the time, in, in Britain, and eventually some American philosophers, kind of get, I put it always this way, kind of get tired of reading uh, German philosophers, specifically Hegel and Heidegger. And they're tired, especially because of the language that they use, uh, that this German philosophers use, um, parenthesis, I, it's, there's a possibility that the issues were translations, right? Because mm. translating from German, it's hard, but even though some of these people probably were speaking German at that time, but anyway, they get tired of this. And this is at the beginning of the 20th century. I want to say the first half of the 20th century, when this happens, um, they get tired of this and they start thinking the philosophy is not going anywhere, which is kind of true at the time. It's like kind of, um, slowing down let's say a philosophy is not at its best like it happens periodically right mm -hmm. uh they, we're kind of reusing the same materials over and over we're studying there's more uh, uh what can you say a push towards a history of philosophy than towards a philosophy mm. towards new new theories i want to say okay so in other words just to recollect the thoughts there was ancient Greece, and mm -hmm. philosophy happened for over 2,000 years in mm -hmm. a specific way. And then these people come out, and they're like, mm, Enough. Enough. <laughs> okay. Well, I, you see, and this is one of those things that we're going to get into. Is that true, though, that we did philosophy for 2,000 years since the Greek till the moment? Because there are know. some, I see some changes happening, right, throughout the history of philosophy. I would, I mean... Even within Greece, right? You move from the pre-Socratics, for example, and with this, this. If you want, pre-Socratics are probably the first scientists, right? Hmm. And then Socrates comes and changes the way in which we do things, right? There's a completely different way of doing philosophy after Socrates. And then we get to the Middle Ages, where all of a sudden, the things that the Greeks are trying to avoid, which is merging religion and philosophy, actually for them was. We're trying to give explanation about the universe there, nothing to do with the gods and with religion. We go to the Middle Ages, and then religion, of course, gets into this because that is 
the the main mm. how can we say the main uh, topic the thing that rules everybody's life right is religion at that point and philosophers of course are uh, pay attention to what happens around them and then when they start talking about this kind of stuff in middle uh, middle the philosophy of the middle ages it's different from Greek philosophy then we get modernity right different right. and then the even the way which we inquire changes i believe right yeah right right and then you get the romantics we get we get philosophy goes different ways again and then we get to this this rift but the, i think that you're right when if we say if we what you mean is that at that point this is probably the biggest rift that we ever had hmm. in philosophy, or at least. Uh, that is the loudest vibe I know. it picked up so nicely. And it wasn't it wasn't you this time. For once, that's true. <laughs> if it was mine, it would have been a beep. <laughs> but so one way I'm wondering if it's helpful to look at this is like, okay, so these guys are coming out of England. Mm-hmm. What are they seeing in the history of philosophy that they're like, this thing is here, it shouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. And what are they seeing in terms of, hey, it's missing this thing, mm-hmm. but it should be here. Because when I look at it, and I don't know if you agree, mm-hmm. I think the thing they claim is missing. Well, I'm thinking two. One is clarity mm-hmm. with regard to topic, method, explanation, and all that stuff. And another one is some kind of, how would you call it? progressive scientific basis and what i mean by that is their view at this is at a point in history where they're seeing the scientific method as producing things results right result right results you know we have and this is actually something that mill said mm-hmm. at the beginning of utilitarianism like with regard to ethics mm-hmm. but i feel like the the things here are the same where he says like you know we're still no better off than we were when socrates was having conversations with these people mm-hmm. mean while in like every other uh, yeah. branch of knowledge, you see these quote unquote concrete advancements. Mm-hmm. And so these guys are like, why don't we have that here? Maybe we need to attach philosophy to a more scientific foundation in terms of not only methods, but like a metaphysical mm-hmm. foundation. So clarity and the need for practicality and progress. I think you're right. Um for clarity, this is made evident uh, by the search that the analytic tradition has for a specific way of putting things together, right? Mm. Where logic becomes the the prince of of the the branches of philosophy. Uh, not that it wasn't before, but meaning that I want to say that they will claim probably that if something cannot be put into a logical argument, if you're, if, you're not, if something cannot be formalized. Mm-hmm. That is not clear enough, and it's fluff. And which is funny because logic had existed before this. So they're looking for a specific kind of logic. Of course. And I think of the idea of prepositional calculus. Mm -hmm. So if you guys are listening to this and you're like, what do these people have an issue with? What do they want to see? Google prepositional calculus Mm -hmm. and click images. Yeah. And you'll be like, whoa. What is this stuff? And then you'll realize that that is not math, but it's actual philosophy. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so regarding for, regarding clarity, that is definitely the issue. And then there is the the, the attachment to sciences that, that you were mentioning. And there is a... I think you put it 
in a benevolent light, right? So the idea is, so science through scientific method, starting with mo with modernity, has produced a certain amount of results, tangible results. We have gotten better at curing people. We got better at calculating stuff. We got better at specific in physics. Mm. Uh, physics was this nebulous thing, and then eventually, through this method, we now have mathematical propositions and everything else that can explain things exactly. We know exactly how things work, and we know exactly how things are. Kind of, but still, <laughs> that's what they believe, right? Um, at the same time, the one might say that. Uh, there is another reason behind this, right? So one is to look at the results of the discipline. Then there's an egoistical or mm. egotistical reasoning that one can make, right? One who's a little bit more malicious than me and you, maybe. They can say, yeah, you know what? These philosophers realize that in order for them to be relevant socially, they need to make mm. this move and they need to bring philosophy to their realm. So they're sellouts. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, because that is the only way they remain relevant. in their okay. right? Which makes sense, right? Because we kind of are at the point where science, and still is today is starting to shift again, but I think it has been this way, where science was the only judge when it came to the reality of things, the rightness of things, and everything. You and a specific type of science, too. Exactly. So yeah. hard sciences, specifically, right? And if you want to be... If you want people to listen to you, you need to bring scientific evidence about stuff. And there's a bunch of, of humanities, right? A bunch of things that were humanities that made this move together with the analytic philosophers. I'm thinking of psychology. I'm mm -hmm. thinking of sociology. I'm thinking of partially anthropology. All those disciplines were first grounded in philosophy, and they were proud to be philosophical disciplines. And then around the same period of time, so for psychology, after Freud and after all the psychoanalysis stuff, then all of a sudden we start having a move to make psychology more of an exact science. Mm. And we had the birth of the social sciences, which I think is the same move that the analytics made. Again, they want to be relevant, and they think that the only way to be relevant is to follow, the to be an ancillary science to the to the big science capital S. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. think. And when you say, when we say scientific method, maybe the a couple things we mean is like a, you have to adopt. Well, I don't want to say this for everybody, but in general, it seems like you have to adopt some kind of realist foundation. Yes. Right? In other uh, words... Materialism, for, uh, for sure. Right. So there is some type of external world that mm -hmm. exists independently of our experience of it. Mm -hmm. This external material world is composed of one type of stuff, uh, namely matter, matter, physical things, mm -hmm. energy, right? All that mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and we have access to that. Mm -hmm. and the access to it is largely through the sense organs mm -hmm. or through machines that can pick up stuff that our sense organs can't pick up directly but mm -hmm. can pick up indirectly through the machines, yeah. and this is how we learn about nature. There's a thing out there, and we observe this thing either directly or indirectly, and we get concrete empirical information about it. 
that can be put in mathematical terms. That can be put in mathematical terms, and we can use this to observe patterns yeah. and make predictions about the future. Correct. Okay. And as we have seen in the past couple of years, this works perfectly. <laughs> and, <laughs> but um, yes, correct. Um, which is strange, right? Because up to right before this rift, uh, right, right before the analytic philosophy came, um, came in play, philosophy had somewhat of a prominent role when it came to founding sciences. So now we are at the point where I was saying before, sciences are the foundation of any specific argument, thought, theory that you're bringing forward. Mm. If it contradicts any scientific evidence, you're a, you're a loony, you don't know what you're talking about, it's bad. And most of the times, maybe you are when you when if you're contradicting like specific stuff, right? But I'm saying that is the thing, that the foundation for everything else. Well, before, at least up to the 1800s, I want to say at least, you have sciences need to be founded philosophically. Think of Descartes. That's, think that's of Kant. exactly who I was thinking of. Think of Kant, right? Kant is like, well, wait a minute. Sciences are, what are we going to do here? Like, mm -hmm. you must write this, this, this old thing. If we go through induction all the time, we're just putting things together. There's no certainty there. How do we do this? How do we found those types of stuff? In order for math and sciences to be relevant, what do we need to do? We need to have a philosophical foundation on things. And the analytics come. And say pretty much, no, 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 no. Yes, yes, yes. This is not good enough. This doesn't work anymore because we have strayed from this project, right? We have strayed. Now we're talking about some, we're talking about being and we're talking mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. uh, dialectic. And those things are do not serve this purpose anymore. Mm. First of all, the only philosophy that could exist is a philosophy that is concerned with scientific stuff, mm -hmm. which means it's concerned with this, uh, that, that fits this, materialism frame that is there and if it's outside this it doesn't work really well um, and it works only if it is working hand in hand with science at best yeah I think this makes sense um, and in terms I, of a characterization what were you going to say I, I'm saying that and I don't think that this is necessarily a bad thing no, if no, it no. wasn't the only thing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's totally understandable because yeah. you see a bunch of people and like the more abstract philosophy gets by the time you're reading Hegel, even I, like you'd be like, oh, this stuff seems like poetry or something, mm -hmm. right? If you're not like constantly 110% engrossed mentally, you're like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, exactly. But um, th so this is the thing. So previously I said... There's some stuff they said philosophy didn't have that it should have, and we talked about that. And now I think about, I think that we've come across the other thing I said, which is that philosophy had something which it didn't, and that's metaphysical concern. Yep. So philosophy always was concerned with first-order questions, mm -hmm. right? Questions about the fundamental nature of existence and reality. And you go back to Aristotle, and he... He wrote the physics, mm -hmm. and this physics he talked about all the different um, mechanics of reality um, in terms of the basic physical causal stuff. I don't want to say basic because like mm -hmm. that's really hard, <laughs> dense stuff. That whatever. Um, but then he wrote this thing. Chapter is a good read. Yes, <laughs> uh, I, I did a couple weeks ago. Four causes in my class. Um, he writes this thing 
after the physics mm -hmm. that deals with stuff that is more fundamental than physics. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, if you look at, I always say you look at belief structures and knowledge like a pyramid, there's stuff that's uh, more upper level and it's being held up by more fundamental stuff, more foundational stuff. It's mm -hmm. like the eighth floor needs the seventh floor needs the first floor, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe we think of physics as being the first floor or something, but these guys were like, not exactly. There's, there's, there's something more. Yes, there's a basement, <laughs> right, with this very deep, dark, scary basement, which you'll never get out of. Um, and for Aristotle, he talked about this as the study of being qua being, yeah. right? Or in other words, being insofar as it is being, or being with regard to their being. Yeah. And this is typically called ontology, but they attach the name metaphysics to this because meta technically means after. So it's like after the physics, what do we do? Mm -hmm. How are we like now examining that basement floor? Mm -hmm. And this has been the tradition, like you said, um, Descartes and Kant. And Descartes even says at the beginning of the meditations, everything I used to think I knew was wrong. Yeah. And I need to start from scratch, right, from ground zero, mm -hmm. and find something, if there is anything, that I could know with absolute certainty. Exactly. If we ever want to find something firm and lasting in the sciences. Yeah. So this is what he means. We need certain metaphysical axioms mm -hmm. so that we can build science on top of a firm foundation. Correct. Whereas these other guys, and then Kant takes this into a more abstract level, and then Hegel and the phenomenologists and whatever... And then the uh, analytics come out and they're like, basically, you'll spend your whole life building that basement. Yeah. And you'll never get on to building the building. So yeah. we have to whoosh, we have to move on. We have to be like, we don't care about the basement. Actually, the basement isn't even there. <laughs> mm. Because this is what the, the logical, positiv uh, logical positivism does mm. at the beginning, mm. right? With the Vienna Circle and the standards like this. That's... Uh, <laughs> There's millions of stories about this with these people like Carnap and, you know, uh, von, uh, what's his name? There's a bunch of them in there. Uh, Schlick, all these people. Okay, okay. Um, and they're reading stuff. They're supposed to be already, like, rigorous and and uh, and analytical. Somebody like Wittgenstein, on which we did the episode. So they're reading that book that we went through, and they're not satisfied. They think <laughs> it's, it's metaphysical. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's this guy specifically, Neurat, Otto Neurat, that says, that keeps interrupting those reading meetings, keeps saying, no, no, this is, this is BS pretty much. We, th he's wrong here because it's, there's a metaphysical presupposition to this, mm -hmm. this proposition that's there. So this, we need to take it away. He got so bad that this guy kept interrupting that the other guys were like, we got it. Just, you don't need to say it for every proposition that's metaphysical there. Just going through it. We're deconstructing it, deconstructing it. We're just going to figure it out. And he stays a little bit there, and then he says, can I just say the word non-metaphysics when, when he says it's non-metaphysical? <laughs> because it's gonna be, I'm not going to interrupt you much. They, they agreed on that. But to tell you that they declare metaphysics dead mm. at that point. Mm -hmm. They say metaphysics is something that we need to cut out. It's just BS. There's nothing... Be be, physics becomes metaphysics for them. Mm -hmm. That's the foundation it is, the physical world and everything else. And everything else that is beyond that is just poetry, nonsense, and so on and so on. And like just 
puzzles you've hypothetically made in your head that have maybe no bearing on the actual world? For them specifically, the issue is our language. And we go back to the clarity things that you were talking about. So for them, the issue is natural languages, which are English, Italian, German, the language that we speak, mm-hmm. are not precise enough. And because of them, we get caught up. We start thinking of problems that don't really exist. They're just verbal disputes. There's nothing else. The problem is our language is imperfect. It makes us believe that things exist, but they don't really do. With being, for example, right? Being is a verb. Right. Like it's not a thing. It's not a thing. But because the English language and many other languages can make verbs into things by adding an article in front of it, Mm -hmm. for example, or things Mm -hmm. like that. Well, we get confused in thinking then that something like a verb can be a thing. And that is a mistake. It's almost like we spend too much time exploring uh, conceptual structures yes. that we start to mistake the concepts themselves for the basis of reality. Correct. And so like, if you want to return to this particular universal distinction between the concrete things that we can touch and these abstract ideas we have, mm-hmm. it seems like they're saying, you guys are still doing this kind of platonic idealism thing and we're we're sticking with this concrete stuff yep. right here yeah and now to be fair things have changed a little bit because now there, before if you were an analytic philosopher you weren't doing metaphysics there was nothing to do there um in the 40s in the 50s uh in the 30s in you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. Now, as we have seen in the reading group that we did, yeah, there yeah. are there is some metaphysics. That's what been was done. her name? The one that uh, Jonathan was doing. Uh, oh, well, well, anyway, he did some. I should know, but some. Uh, she's the chair of of uh, Rutgers right now, yeah. and she's like writing what he was describing as cutting edge metaphysics within what is considered the analytic framework. Yeah, which you're saying is like inconceivable years ago. Yeah, years ago it was inconceivable, but now instead, they're I think they've come around. <laughs> And they're understanding that there might be something more to talk about. And and the book was interesting because uh, she was talking about this. How do we decide what a thing is, pretty much? And, yeah. and how, how does it become a thing? How does it become a thing, right? Which is still within the realm of materialism, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're ta- we are assuming already that things are. There's nothing True. there, right? True. Um, but at least we're talking about how do we assemble them and how does it become a thing? Is it just separated from everything else? Do we put it together by... All the things that he was he was talking about, right? Yeah, it's like how do you uh, arrive at macro yeah. facts from micro facts? So how do you start out from the smallest things and then build your way up to these large entities we recognize mm-hmm. as you know, table, yeah. statue, chair, whatever exactly. cities? But this is already, from our perspective, an improvement, right? Yes, because you were in a position where that was taboo. And now you can talk about it. It's like they have rehabilitated. It's like mm. pot, right? Before it was bad. Now <laughs> you can buy it. And this is the same. But if it's bad, now it's okay. Now it's legal. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's, it's similar. Um, it's, it's, there's so many comparisons that can be made by this two, for these two things. The more I think about it. But yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, so that is, that is what's changed, right? I think that metaphysics always has a way to come back from, you kick it out the door, it comes back from the window. Hmm. Well, it's like uh, reactions, right? Not to get Hegelian, but it's like maybe you have stuff going too far in one direction where Mm -hmm. it does become 
too detached and where it does potentially dissolve into like whatever, mm-hmm. like, cause you know, you have that, uh, debate, this is coming after the split, but mm-hmm. I feel like it represents a more contemporary version of the split yeah. between, uh, Derrida and Searle yeah. on language. Right. And you have someone like Derrida talking about deconstructing and there's like nothing outside the text and there's an infinite number of interpretations of everything. Mm-hmm. And then you have Searle being like, I can't even understand what you're saying. What you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So in response to that, you have like a, the pendulum in the, the extreme other direction, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, nope, there's these concrete physical facts within mm-hmm. the scientific method as we've defined it, right? Because yeah. I don't want to make it seem like these people have the monopoly on what, no, no, what no. science is. And then you see maybe there needs to be some moderation yeah right because what is it the the continentals eventually said something like you guys are missing the forest for the trees mm-hmm. to, which reminds me of our nature walk yeah. in a double sense yeah. but yeah absolutely and that is that is probably the problem right uh, and there is there was a period and i think that when people were just interpreting hegel and talking the way heidegger used to talk right mm-hmm. things become difficult and it becomes not very accessible as well. So you need a, a different view. And th- I think that some parts of it, especially at the beginning, it was refreshing. Uh, and he actually eventually, you know, s- stimulated the other ones to be like, okay, we need to get out of the slump. Like Kant does something similar. Mm. It is like, but it's the, the reverse, right, for, for Kant. It's like we are... Uh, in this slumber, this dogmatic slumber, with mm. the, the way he calls it, right? And then he gets awakened by humans, like, wait a minute, you know. Uh, but I'm saying those things happen cyclically, uh, evidently. I think that we are now in a position, we are now in a situation where we've been bathing in the, and we're, or we're we basking into this, this scientific sun for a long time. Mm-hmm. And we're now starting to understand that we cannot deliver what is promised, mm. meaning this absolute certainty, this uh, series of of certainties and um, all kinds. Of, how else we can we call it? Like all encompassingness. All encompassingness. Like whatever. If I have the only way in which I can explain things is this way, and if I follow these rules that science gives me, I will automatically get to this exact result mm-hmm. we're figuring out i'm not talking about just the pandemic i'm talking in general really we have figured out that it is not exactly that way mm. and some honest scientists will tell you that that's the case right that there is no certainty there there's like you know the science is just is and i know it sounds going to sound unconceivable to some people listening but gi- science is just science <laughs> mm. meaning that he cannot give us these absolute explanations that we want because mm-hmm. that will be metaphysics, mm-hmm, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a methodology with its limits. And the problem now that I see with 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 the analytic tradition, and eventually we'll need to get into the continental stuff too, oh, otherwise yeah. it becomes a bashing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thing. But with the problem with the analytic tradition is fairly simple, that because they're so attached to science, mm-hmm they don't seem to be able to criticize us when it's when it's the case hmm. and they're going down with the ship because now at a certain point i it's can't like, give up i'm too deep into it's it like, it's like what are they gonna do right mm-hmm. because now for for years they've been saying well this is the way to go this is the only way in which we can do this and again to be fair they're not saying 
not all of them, and they're not saying that, you know, we should completely cut any kind of philosophy out. But that <laughs> seems to be the case. But again, I see a movement towards the other side. The thing that we read about metaphysics could be one thing. I'm assuming that now there's going to be more analytic philosophers starting to criticize science because if I'm right in the first assumption that some of this was motivated by social um, um, relevance, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now to keep relevant, they probably will need to move away from this. Oh, interesting. So... I mean, so, okay, let's maybe give a few examples yeah. of, like, ideas mm -hmm. had by specific analytic philosophers. So people are like, oh, this is the kind of thing. Mm. Now, while you you're anything? thinking, I, the only thing I think of right now is um, you mentioned Carnap before. Yeah. Hold on, I got to, one second. Yeah. Well, I can, I can tell you that. So there's, there's some specific things, like... Uh, you were thinking Carnap, so I'm assuming like truth stuff. Oh. Are you okay? Um, yeah, just allergies. To, yeah, I was thinking. So Carnap had this project of the world sayings. Yep. And so going back to this prepositional calculus thing, it's like if you look up prepositional calculus, you will see a bunch of letters and a bunch of symbols, mm -hmm. and it goes beyond the basic symbols that you would learn in like like a logic an intro mm -hmm. logic class, and it starts to look like. Like, like a computer screen, right? Like yep. the Matrix. That's crazy <laughs> stuff. Um, and the idea they had was that if you could, and correct me if I'm wrong, in order to be as clear as possible, there needs to be a kind of universal language mm -hmm. in the way that math, they say math or music, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone knows this language. Some kind of language that's stripped down of any... Um, connotations or metaphysical baggage mm -hmm. or anything that requires any kind of specialized knowledge, whatever, into culture. And you have this thing. And yep. everything can be said in this calculator type way. Yeah. It's just so <laughs> And again, I'm going to sound, this is, Jonathan is going to kill me. Uh, <laughs> which tells you, for example, so Carnap had this project exactly to simplify, to create a la universal language, a logical language which everything can be put in, mm -hmm. so we can only get, so we can get to the truth of stuff. And, and everything. In an unbiased way. Exactly. And whatever didn't fit there was just, again, fluff. Yes, which in theory I think works. Yes. Because, like, you know, it, if P then Q, P therefore Q, right? That's yeah. a logical form that's unbiased and, yes. and all this stuff. But Absolutely. Uh, two things about this. Number one, this is another thing that the, the, we forgot to mention, the analytic tradition refuses almost especially at the beginning carbon carnap is a good example of this to give in to the idea that i need to know the history of philosophy to mm. do philosophy they're detached from this we right, need to right. we don't care about that that's a good point we missed that and that's important we don't care about this we don't need to read aristotle aristotle is just like science would say of the very first uh, people to start doing arithmetic for example they're we're beyond that. It's like reading about humoral theory exactly. and like, I don't need to read about how people used to drain blood to make you less angry to be a doctor. They're, they're like, um, how can we say? They're obsolete. Yes, yes. But he would have known if he would have studied the history of philosophy, they already Leibniz wanted to do something like that. Mm, mm -hmm. So th some of this idea are clearly a recycle. They're recycled from others, other and 
probably got enough new livelihoods, but I'm saying... But he was a scientist, exactly, not a philosopher. Exactly, right? So that is the thing, that then they recycle some of those ideas and they put it into a more rigorous, according to what they would say, probably, form, mm-hmm. and they try to do that. But as you guys might know, because we don't use this language, this language didn't, doesn't exist. He failed. The project failed. Mm. Karna project is, didn't realize the way he wants because all of a sudden people studying under him started showing him that things didn't work. And the idea was like to kind of make, at least with the world science, a kind of meta science. Yes. Or even a meta meta science where it it is the... I don't even... It's so meta that it's hard to come back and say. But it's something like it gives the structure of any possible sentence about anything that is or could be yeah. or is not. Yeah, right? exactly. And it's just this long string of text. The, the alphabet. That's yes. what it was called. Yes. 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 Um, so, I mean, look that up, right? Look like the world sentence, the alphabet, and you'll see this kind of thing. Um, did you have something about besides? I think it's connected to this. There's this whole thing, still logical positivism, still Vienna Circle. They are the one that come out like this is very attached to sciences, right? They come out with this idea of how can we understand if something is, I don't want to say real because that's not what they're thinking of. If a proposition that I have can, and I stress this word, can be true or not. Mm. Because the only proposition that makes sense are proposition that can or cannot be true, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because other things are just, again, fluff. There's not So like ethics and aesthetics is exactly, gone. Exactly, immediately. And they have this idea that's called verification, verifi, verificationism, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Is this? Yeah. Yeah, verification, like... right? Yeah. Um, where they say that pretty much everything that I say needs to be, it needs to be possible to be verified, which means I need to go outside and be like, okay, this is, True or false, if something cannot be verified, that's metaphysics. Yes. Then trash. Okay, so it has to be falsifiable. Nope. No? Verifiable for them. Because I was thinking of... Um, then Popper comes Popper. around. Popper, yes, yes. Then Popper comes around and be like, you guys are crazy. Mm. That doesn't work. Things don't need to be verifiable to be scientific. They need to be falsifiable. Right, because there are some things that are may be true but are not verifiable exactly but it certainly needs to be possible of being false but that's also an issue too because then you can't have a priori truths exactly because that's metaphysics exactly exactly but i'm saying at first they start with this idea that the only scientific true i mean not scientific and sensical Mm -hmm. uh propositions are propositions that can be verified Mm -hmm. if they cannot be verified they're nonsensical so, for example, um, feeling an emotion exactly. Let's say outside it, of the chemicals that compose the emotion. It's almost like nonsensical to speak about it. Or saying things like, uh, lying is wrong. Mm. Or this artwork is beautiful. Exactly. Those things, can you verify them? Is there a way in which you can be like, hey, this is it. Look, it is objectively this way. Mm. No, of course, right? We have a hard time doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least according to their standards. And right? it starts with Wittgenstein, yeah, right? Exactly. Like this whole nonsense stuff. Exactly, exactly. And not me calling it nonsense, but him saying yeah, those yeah. things literally don't make sense. Exactly. And for for them, he wasn't strict enough. So they start cutting out stuff, and then they start running into problems because 
they're cutting out stuff that they cannot cut out. Mm-hmm. And then somebody like Popper needs to come in and say, you guys, again, are crazy. There are things that are obviously true, but cannot be verified, as you're saying, but they the things need to be falsifiable, meaning that we we cannot have any systems that is all-encompassing. Mm-hmm. We need to have the possibility to eventually, for the system to fail, kind of. Because if it doesn't, then it becomes like propaganda. It becomes an ideology. So. Right? Like when, right. So if something, if an empirical statement is made yes. and it's not falsifiable, then it becomes ideological. Correct. Right? And that's different from saying like that a, that a rational truth is unfalsifiable because some of them are. That's what a priori knowledge is. Exactly. But it, it's funny because, so you had mentioned the, his, the his, how would you say, a historicality? Yes. And then also the, if it can't be put into this language, does it make sense? And I, I have examples of both of this in my life. I was having an, uh, back in the day when I had a presence on Facebook, which was the worst <laughs> thing ever. The worst thing I ever. I disagree Best with that. decision I ever made was not having a Facebook years ago. Um, <laughs> and I got into an argument with someone about something so philosophical. That is the wrong thing to do, getting yeah. into arguments with people on Facebook, not Facebook. All right, to be continued. Um, and we were talking about something that related to philosophy of science and or metaphysics. Mm. And uh, this dude was apparently very into this stuff that we're talking uh-huh. about. And I had said something like about the law of identity, right? Like A is A. Mm-hmm. And he said, what does that even mean? And I was like, well, a thing is necessarily the thing that it is, right? It's not anything else. Um, it, it has certain properties that give it its its thisness versus anything else, right? Whatever. Um, and when it comes to truth, it's like if it's true, that means it's true and not false. And if it's false, that means it's false, not true, whatever. And then he kept being like, I don't know what this means. And I said, well, you can read about it in Aristotle's Metaphysics where he talks about the identity and non-contradiction. And he was like, well, can you put that in prepositional calculus, please? <laughs> what, go read Aristotle in prepositional calculus? Uh, no, the, <laughs> A is A. Oh, God. He said, if you can't put A equals A yeah, into I, prepositional calculus. I think that he was also stupid, not just, is, and someone, not just analytic. Someone commented and they were like, oh, dude, like, you know, the... The 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 1900s called they want their logical positivism back or whatever, <laughs> but it was interesting because I even said the thing about something cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same way whatever uh-huh. and he was just like that's that's meaningless, um so that's that component, and then, well and and you might say right there that's an issue right because mm-hmm. like what do you mean that's exactly. that's an that's what an axiom is there there comes a point where something, um is, almost justified in itself by the form like. If in formulating it, you you have to use it, yeah. right? Like that's how fundamental it is. It, um, it's an axiom. I mean, that's the definition. That's, it's right. And again, you can say whatever you want. Axiom are made up. We made it. We decided this is the starting point. Whatever mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. But that is it. That's and, what it is. And the guy was using it while speaking to you without knowing properly. Right. And it's not a corollary of something more fundamental. Exactly. So I mean, the Aristotle tries, but anyway. Um, and then another time but I if got you don't to read Aristotle. This is true. Different <laughs> argument with someone about... Still on Facebook? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this time it was something with um, the ethics of you know making certain things legal or illegal and 
got into like something about thoughts. And I was like, this is insane. You're like talking about the legality of thoughts. And I said something about Socrates. Okay. And this girl was like, well, that's not really relevant anymore. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, this is this method and this way of asking, like, what are you talking about? And she said something like, well, we don't really study him anymore except as a you know historical figure. Like, he's no longer relevant in doing philosophy. And I was like so baffled that I was like, there's nothing I could say that could I'll make bet, this person. I'll bet you mm-hmm. that if you would ask, what did I, can you name me a couple of books of Socrates that you don't read anymore? Mm-hmm. She would have given you titles. Hmm. Because this is the kind of person that doesn't even know who Socrates is. Interesting. But but anyway, yeah, this this is the kind of thing. Yeah, yeah but it's this historical, this non-historical view of philosophy that, again, I think he, uh, he did hinder mm-hmm. a lot of them, a lot of the analytic tradition. Uh, and it's funny because I think that the best analytic philosophers are the philosophers that have read the history of philosophy. I think that the best uh, analytic philosophers are the ones that have done the legwork. Would you consider Russell one of these people? Yeah, I would yeah. say so. Okay, I would say so. Even though he's like very pernicious for so many things. To yeah, me. I mean, he ha- let's let's talk about this this uh, rule he has. Uh-huh. Okay, so he has this thing about the teapot. Uh-huh. You know what I'm about to say? Yeah. So he basically says, and he uses this as an argument against the existence of God. Yeah. So sometimes when you talk to people who will believe in God, and then you say, "How?" They say, "Well, no, you you prove to me." That God is false, mm-hmm. right? So Russell sees this and he's like, "That's kind of insane because then anyone can say anything and just assume they're right until t- uh, until someone proves them wrong." And he says, "Actually, that seems today the internet." They, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> go back to that. Um, so he comes from a reasonable foundation, but he makes this rule where he says something like, "The burden of proof is on the a person." making the the positive claim mm-hmm. right so if you're saying god exists the rules of argument would have it that you have to provide proof that god exists in order for me to believe it mm-hmm. the burden of proof is not on me to try and disprove something mm-hmm. and he says so it's like if i were to tell you there is a you know, this flying teapot that's existing in Earth's orbit, but it's invisible and always be on the eye and you can't see it. It would be kind of insane if I sat here and said, no, 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 but you have to prove to me why that thing, (laughs) you know, doesn't exist or whatever. So he comes up with this rule, but I I find that that can be limiting sometimes. So, but, you know, I agree with you. There are some of the the stuff... um, there are a little bit limiting. However, I believe that being one of the bad or the better philosophers there, because again, he knows his sister of philosophy very well. I mean, he wrote yeah, the book. Right? Exactly, yeah. right? He knows his he is biased towards some philosophers, in my opinion, for gonna be destroys Barclay in a way that I think is unfair. But the point being, I think the difference between this, between Russell and some other analytic philosophers, uh let alone those people you were talking on mm-hmm. Facebook, is the fact that while those things are limiting, they do make sense and they leave sure. room for discussions. Russell will never tell you, well, I don't understand this in the way that, that it did. Um, the limitations are there, 
But to me, they're kind of similar to the limitations that can be in the card mm. discourse, right? There are obvious limitations when you apply his method, his doubt, for example, right? There are certain things that he leaves out and certain things that he does that are limiting. So I am willing I am willing to accept those limitations mm-hmm. when it comes to Russell, right? There are other philosophers that are, I believe, like Quine is another one of those mm-hmm. that I think he knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Searle is another one that I mainly... I think Searle is good. Uh, no, what he's talking about. When we get to Dennett, mm. then I don't know anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Does he really know? Uh, does he really know what he's talking about? But you know what's weird is that, like, I feel like Dennett is even disliked in analytic circles. Yes, right. We, like we've heard, Jonathan has said this, and when I've gone to conferences, I've heard people kind of almost like laugh at this guy, which is weird because yeah but but i'm saying you, we can see the difference there right it's yeah. easy to see the difference between this this people that we mentioned and there are others uh that they're the same way there are some and again this is from the point of view of somebody who, who likes to be uh in the continental camp uh, but i think that there are some analytic philosophers that are very good that they know what they're talking about mm-hmm. and i see a correlation between their knowledge of the history of philosophy and the problems of philosophy mm-hmm. uh, and them being good. I, mm. I think that this history stuff is plays a huge role when it comes to this. I think you're right. And I two that I think are good right off the bat, Chalmers and Humor. Yep. So Chalmers has this whole project where he was trying to compile like everything that was ever written about consciousness, mm-hmm. dating back as far as we can go. Mm-hmm. Like that is awesome. Yep. And that, that shows like such a historical. Yeah. You need to know what's really what's going on. Yeah. Right? And yeah. like what has been said and what has been said against it and what can we learn from this? And mm-hmm. the way he writes is, is very clear, I think. Um, and then. Humor and probably other political. I I I I didn't say this in the beginning, but I think analytic political philosophy is good because it it is in conversation with a lot of the history. Maybe we should talk about the the political part. uh, Yeah, eventually in the next part of the episode. But continue, please. Yeah, yeah. And I was gonna say we got you know in the next one talk about continental stuff and why issues that other people have with it and issues that we have with it too, right? And like what what you get and what you lose from it. Um, but I was going to say, like something like um, social contract theory, for example. You know, you read all these people, and there's always attached to Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and and Rawls and Nozick. And like the more in the future we go, it it goes back. Now, you might ask, do they go further back than that? Plato, mm-hmm. right? There is like a, a I think a deep respect for the political ideas of Plato. And Aristotle, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe some other things, but it's Machiavelli there, right? Right, right. Um, so I do think that out of all the analytic stuff, the mind and the political stuff is the most digestible for us because of their historical rootedness. Probably, I'm wondering if the the political stuff is kind of inevitable, right? Because mm. it seems that the pillars of the political discourse are still the same, right? So it's very difficult to make a to talk about stuff and, and because it's social and because it, exactly. it can't quite be put into that like yes uh verificationist uh but, prepositional but, calculus thing. but the mind definitely the mind i can see that that is there are some philosophers of mind that don't i'm thinking uh the church lens oh yes 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 they're like 
and we don't care. Well, even yeah. the, the guy, what's his name, Andy Clark. Okay, Th- thinking uh, this is fiction type yes, stuff. Yeah, yes, yeah. and one instead you have like people like Damasio, for example, right? Mm. That they they go back to the cart and and stuff like that. He writes he writes a book called uh, the cart's mistake or something like that. Mm. The, the, the cart's error, um, and you know he's engaging with that, right? Well, if you look at Dennett, he, well, he goes back to Darwin. <laughs> mm. Darwin dangerous idea. That's yeah, well, he critiques Descartes. Exactly. He so, does. But, but it's at, well, and I'm, I'm wondering how much, I'm assuming he has read the court. Mm. Uh, how much does he get it? How much does he care? It, because I was about to say, it's not just the fact that you don't read it, right? Because some people just, I think that the church don't have read very little history of philosophy, for example. And I might be wrong, but, but there might be some philosopher let's say Dennett, mm-hmm. that I've read those things. But the eye, they, 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 the mindset that they have when they read it is not the one that you should have. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not reading it as a possible fountain of knowledge, right? For them, for Dennett, maybe this is just some dude with the limited knowledge of the world, the road, the road like uh, 500 years ago, 600 years ago, then of course it's never going to tell me anything that is relevant for me. But some crazy continental dudes keep on referring to this. So I'll read it and I'll disprove it. And that is different, right? Yeah, it's like there's almost this teleological... It's very funny because they're very anti-teleology. But like a teleological view of knowledge as always working towards the scientific method and then scientific knowledge being like the tree that grows from the seed. Yeah. So all ancient cultures all the systems of knowledge produced by them are seen as like and this is something that peterson talks about as being an issue with those mindsets is seen as proto-science mm-hmm. as lesser versions of the same thing rather than as different things yeah um and i think that that is to do that the issue with this um it's it's huge right and uh even more importantly, I think that this fits into a specific epistemology, right? A specific way of understanding knowledge as, and you know, I always say this, I'm very skeptical about this idea that knowledge is progressive. Mm-hmm. And we accumulate, it's an accumulation, right? That we started with the Greeks and now a long time ago, we can look at them as, you can call it proto, you can call it the very beginning of this, but they have just a little bit, it was the first grain of sand, right? Now we're building and building and building and adding to it to the point that now we're approximating, we're progressing towards this absolute truth that's going to be in mathematical terms and Mm -hmm. dictated by physics, biology, and whatever else you want. And I think that that is simply false, that it doesn't work that way, um, and that unfortunately some of these analytic philosophers didn't, for example, again, to you, but even I don't even know. Does Dawkins count as a philosopher? I don't even know. That's a that's a tough one. Um, he, whatever he is, he certainly has. Like I was just listening to an interview with him the other day. Um, I can't. I just can't. Stand and it. he has an issue with anything. Like he was using the phrase that a lot of non. Well, how would we say this? Things that are not entirely in line with this particular methodology, he would consider either 
mythological, or he uses the phrase drunk on symbolism. Whereas like this way of scientific way of doing things, it is literal. It is not mythological. It has uh, no symbols in it. It is giving us like the the thing in itself or an approximation of that. Because I think that Dawkins even goes beyond hating on philosophy in general and forget continental. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he he also has a, a... he, I don't think he likes math, mathematics that much either. Oh, I don't know this. I don't think because, again, this all symbolism. He's against the symbolization. He's like hard, mm-hmm. like observational stuff. Yeah, because math you can almost find like a magic in, right? Yeah, and yeah. you can give it kind of religious quality. And as we know, he is. Absolutely. I mean, he wrote the book, The God Delusion. Yeah. Hmm. Well, well, I guess, I guess if we wanted to kind of uh, re, um, how can we say? Uh, recap what we said about analytic philosophy. Uh, what can we say? So there's the the sim- the, the the symbol stuff, the the clarity mm-hmm. that turns into the Karna project, if you want. But again, and I think that we can look at the both sides, right? So there was definitely a need historically. There was a need when they started of some clarity in philosophy. So I think that that's that is something good that they've given us because mm-hmm. now philosophers need to be more clear because of that. Otherwise, they're going to be accused to be mm-hmm. obscure and stuff like that. The other side of this, though, is Carnap and the project of building this symbolic language that can say anything and nothing, if it doesn't fit this language, is, is nonsense. And that is the extreme that we don't like, mm-hmm. I want to say. Then there was, the second thing that you said was the... Um, well, the practicality aspect and i think to summarize it's it's like philosophy was accused of focusing so much on the first order questions that they never got anywhere else because those first order order questions are either uh extremely difficult or about nonsensical fictional things exactly. of the mind that don't actually exist and so you guys have spent like 2,000 years for the most part never getting anywhere. Like I, I think of it as a uh, – you ever see uh, Synecdoche, New York? Yeah, I think With so. With Lucy Moore Hoffman? Yeah. Okay, awesome movie. But like he always has this art project yeah. and like he never finishes, finishes the yeah. art project because it's always becoming like more intense and more authentic yeah. and more raw and it's like – building these massive things and we never actually have the production it's almost like that it's like you guys get lost in the wonder and lost in the beauty and the unsurety and trying to hamper down that one thing that it's like we would starve if we just focused on your way of doing things and just like the clarity stuff i think there is an advantage something that they have brought to philosophy and as you say you need medicine exactly yeah exactly you need medicine and at some point it's like you need to get out of there. You need to get out of the basement. This all basement work needs to eventually go to building the house mm-hmm. because if it doesn't, then you're just always digging. <laughs> yeah, and, and there is like the accusation, like one thing you could say that's bad about the Socratic way of looking at things is the we'll never know anything, yeah. like anything. Yeah. Right? Like, well, well, I don't know. Yeah. And then we're just forever in this state of uh, aporia and perplexity where nothing gets done. So. That was a huge help that came from from them. But then again, the opposite is becoming extremely practical and starting building houses without a basement. Mm -hmm. 
And then they fall, like and Descartes said. Exactly. And then they yeah. fall, like, again, we've seen the last few years, right? If we base everything on statistics, on uh, numbers, then things don't come out the way we mm. think they will because we have no foundation there, right? Um, and then the third thing that we mentioned was the historicity stuff, right? Oh, yes, yes. And the historical stuff, again, they don't think it's as important as we do, the history of philosophy. And again, one thing was good about this, but then it became bad. The thing that was good, like finally people stopped just reading philosophy and they started thinking, if you want, about the problems, right? Because uh, until that moment when you studied philosophy, you kind of went through the history of it. And now with analytic philosophy, instead we go through topics, right? You see mm. even in textbooks, right? Mm. And that is good. Yeah, it's almost oriented towards creativity, whereas the other stuff is more like, yeah, I don't know what reflective. you call it. Yeah. And that is a good thing. But then on the other hand... It's internally skeptic, they might say. Exactly. Then the other hand uh, is if you really refuse the history of philosophy, then you either start repeating things that we already discussed and thought, uh, or you just approach the history of philosophy as a history of failure, a constant failure of these people that, yeah, they did the best they could, but now they're obsolete. And this is not good as well. Right. Yep. So we have some context, and in the next episode, we'll talk. I think about the continental stuff and yep. the weird things <laughs> that these guys are talking about. Yeah, and maybe we'll try to reconcile the, the both things at the end. Kind of. Yeah, and it'll be cool because I think there'll be like uh, some interesting self reflection and maybe criticism since we're both technically yeah we're trained in this camp. Yeah, absolutely. See you later. So that'll be fun. See ya. Thank you.